Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. This winter is a review drive for People of Purpose. As you reflect on your year, it would mean so much to me if you could share in two to three sentences the main way that People of Purpose has influenced you to live a more fully engaged and purpose-driven life. In this world that's full of social metrics like followers and likes, it's easy to get lost in what actually matters. For us, it's super essential to know what impact our channel is actually creating in your lives because that's what actually matters. Your review helps us know what People of Purpose is doing great and what we can improve upon. Also by reviewing, you help us help you by opening the doors for bigger and higher quality guests to come on our show and share their wisdom with you. Your review tells the powers that be that People of Purpose matters. Seeing that People of Purpose has 100 five-star ratings and reviews tells their algorithms to push out our content to thousands more people who each stand to benefit from the commitment to growth and the purposeful community we are creating. My personal goal is to get 50 more reviews by the end of the year, and our team goal is 100. If you've shared what you've learned from People of Purpose with friends and family, please encourage them to take a few minutes to review us as well. Also, for the first 10 people to send me a screenshot of the rating and review, I will be doing a special purpose-driven Q&A. In it, you will get the chance to ask me your most pressing question on purpose and pursuing your goals, and I'll give you my personal take on your most pressing question as it relates to your purpose. In the show notes are the instructions for how to lead the review in Apple Podcasts. It would be awesome if you could copy and paste what you wrote on our Facebook page, Spotify, Google Play, and any other relevant places to drop your review. I promise the five minutes you devote to this could have the high level of impact that volunteering for a day for your favorite organization would. It's really that important. Gorgeous beaded leather sandals. And they really struck me because there was such a contrast to what was all around me. And, and at that moment, I knew I was hooked. That was it. I saw that these were more than just a pair of shoes. They were an opportunity to break a cycle of poverty. You know, it's telling the stories of how this business was started. It's telling stories about what has influenced us. It's sharing the stories of our artisans. Maimuna, she is a sandal feeder and she was amazing. So she is a single mother of three children, two boys and a girl. And her husband left her and her family. So of all of our single artisans on the coast of Kenya, she bar has the smallest home and has the smallest income. I want us to turn into a hub of ethical fashion. Treat clothes as disposable to one where you treat clothes as investments and things that are meant to last. You know, rather than focusing on quantity, the number of purses, the number of shoes, the number of bags, the number of 
you know, whatever you have to, I would rather invest in like a smaller number of staple pairs of these items that will last me 10 times as long. It means that in the long term, there's less waste in terms of like textile waste and plastic waste and things like that. And it really kind of simplifies what we need. Success for me all kind of comes down to impact. Haley Hernandez is the founder of Roho, a brand committed to social change. While walking through a craft market in Uganda, Haley was struck by the beauty of a pair of beaded leather sandals. At that moment, she knew she was hooked. These were more than a pair of shoes. They were an opportunity to break a cycle of poverty. After moving back from East Africa in late 2016, she founded Roho, where she committed herself to creating opportunities for talented artisans across Kenya. In addition to paying Roho artisans wages 50% higher than the industry standard, Roho is also providing education grants to send artisans' children to quality schools. Haley and Roho have committed themselves to working to break the cycle of poverty in the short and long term. Haley continues to speak about the importance of ethical consumerism, finding purpose in work, and the impact in supporting ethical businesses. Haley Hernandez is such a tremendous person of purpose. I really enjoyed this wonderfully lighthearted, easygoing, thoughtful, wise interview that we just had. I think it's incredible that she's only 26 years old and doing all of these you know, enormous undertakings of managing 400 artisans and an international business, social enterprise with what she refers to as a triple bottom line, meaning that she has to worry about the impact on the environment and on the producers as well as the consumers, as well as the profit. I think her story is just really universally captivating. I think she exhibits such a model of new age success, being someone that can you know, a female that runs a business that is intercultural, intersectional, that has this emphasis on the triple bottom line. I think it's just really wonderful. And throughout this interview, she shares all these like little beads and threads of, of stories about how what she's created with Roho and what they've created as a community over there in Kenya is just having such a positive impact on people's lives. They're able to get educated for their first time. They're able to have enough food for their family. They're able to have a purpose and meaning into the work they do rather than just get by. They're ending child labor. All of these sort of just wonderful impacts. And Kaylee also is, is a person that understands business. Like, I think that her ideas about her personal growth and getting clear on your value system and then how that can express itself in your business is just so powerful. I think that for me, the part that resonated so much was the last 10 to 15 minutes of the interview where we were talking about purpose just as a general concept. And I think it's just incredible that she's doing something so, so different than I've ever done. But what she said, I just truly knew to be true inside. And it's because we're both after the same thing. Like she's following her purpose and the way she's defined success, the way that she has determined how she's gonna deal with temporary financial instability and discomfort and how she's clear on her goals and how she's found people to share those goals with. It's just so obvious that this is leading to such a purposeful existence for her in such like a an optimistic, cheerful, hopeful mindset. And 
I just think that's such a, a great model for any young person or anyone in general that's listening and wants to start something big that they feel like nobody else around them has ever done. Kaylee is doing that, and it's just really wonderful to, to get to hear her story today. So I'm excited for all the small ways in which Kaylee's youth and Kaylee's business acumen and her heart for for people of a different culture and for alleviating the cycle of poverty just really shine through in this. I know that I'm going to see shopping in a totally different way for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited for you to get to listen to this interview with today's person of purpose, Kaylee Hernandez. Hello, Kaylee. Welcome to People of Purpose Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. As uh, you're in California, I'm in Thailand, and we're talking about uh, your business in Kenya. I really resonate with the gist of your story here with my study abroad experience in Morocco. I was able to live there for four months and start to engage pretty deeply with some women's cooperatives that were making argon oil. And I came back and tried to start an online like women's cooperative argon oil selling business. And then uh, with like all the demands of college, it kind of fell through and my lack of business knowledge at the time. But I really respect how you have actually really dug in and you know, you've created something very successful and it's getting attention and it's having a really positive impact in the space. I think that you have the power to transform some mindsets around purchasing and kind of your impact of subtle life decisions. And I'm really excited to unpack that with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yeah. So you uh, founded Roho. And what does that mean in, uh, in Swahili? Roho is a Swahili word that means spirit or kindness. Nice. So yeah, you've brought spirit and kindness to women in Kenya. And I just want to understand how it got started. You were kind of just walking through and looking at products and was attracted to something beautiful and boom, now you got a real business. So how did Roho get started? So I always knew I wanted to be involved in reducing poverty and I never really knew in what direction that would lead. But in college, I decided to start working for nonprofits. So I was living in rural Uganda at the time. And on the weekends, I would take a bus into larger towns to explore and travel a bit, just because there wasn't much to do in this rural village. And these larger towns, they attract tourists and they have craft markets. And it sounds kind of quaint, I guess, but they're dusty, you know, they have cracked concrete floors, you know, they rarely have electricity, things like that. But I remember turning and looking over my shoulder because something beautiful and sparkling caught my eye. And it was a pair of these gorgeous beaded leather sandals. And they really struck me because there was such a contrast to what was all around me. And, and at that moment, I knew I was hooked. That was it. And so I became obsessed with finding the highest quality sandal manufacturers in the area because I saw that these were more than just a pair of shoes. They were an opportunity to break a cycle of poverty. So it took me about a year to source our high quality sandal manufacturers in East Africa, but I finally found our current supplier. And it's this Kenyan woman named Lydia who owns this workshop where she works with 42 artisans, 36 women, six men who create these beautiful handmade beaded leather sandals. And so we started with sandals and we've expanded to working with a bunch of artisan groups across Kenya. So we like to say we're more than a shoe. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me about Lydia. What is so special about her that uh, she's kind of your center point here? And, and also you have an interesting story about how you found her, right? Absolutely. So, you know, when I was starting to kind of map out the East Africa sandal industry, I was conducting research in East Africa at the time. So I would, you know, I won't bore you with the specifics of the research because it wasn't that interesting. But what was, was at the end of my interviews with my respondents, I would start to kind of ask them, okay, well, you know, where do these sandals come from and who makes these? And, and I just really kind of developed a relationship with these people and they kind of helped me, led me in the direction I really needed to go. And, you know, I kept being told by these local shoppers to look for, and in quotes, I'm going to say fat Lydia. And this refreshingly is not a negative term. It's, you know, it's kind of a compliment in East Africa. Just means, you know, you have enough food and are wealthy enough to be able to, you know, be, become overweight. But anyway, so it was just, <laughs> it's just one of those things. You know, people are very descriptive there. I mean, no one has like hangups in the same way we do about that. So anyway, I went on the hunt for this fat Lydia. And so long story short, I was told where she would be and off I went. And so I had to take three different motorcycle taxis to, and they took me to three wrong parts of the city. And it was just like a total cluster. And I was just left like wondering what the heck I was doing in this foreign country. And I was cursing my inability to speak Swahili and Lugandan fluently. But I finally found this woman. I finally found Lydia. I kind of joke that when I arrived, I can only imagine what I, I was sweaty, disheveled, like overwhelmed by the prospect of what I was trying to do. But I really started to explain to her how much I loved her shoes and wanted to learn more. And we clicked right away. My Swahili definitely was not up to par at that point, And English wasn't perfect either, but we made it work. And I say it's because beautiful shoes are universal. So, you know, I sat with her on these tiny levels for several hours. It was hot and sweaty, but it was so perfect because I explained to her this idea of me importing these beaded leather sandals to the US. And she explained the process of making these shoes. She told me about the artisans she's working with, um, these 42 that I mentioned before. And, you know, eventually I traveled to the coast where the shoes are made, the coast of Kenya. And, you know, I started to develop a relationship artisans myself as well and just really became committed to them and to their craft and you know my business and friendship with Lydia has grown over the years as well right wow that's amazing that's really cool how you're able to start with this thread of an idea and then just keep pulling on it and find yourself on the coast of Kenya talking to suppliers about how to make this a real operation and you were so young when you were doing this too right how did you I was in college at the time when I found Lydia and, you know, I just knew at that moment that it was, it was something, I mean, just like with your podcast, this was something that was meaningful. It was purposeful. And while I didn't have all the information or know exactly what it would look like, I knew that it could develop into something really promising. And so I just kind of kept working and have had to really, it's felt a lot of times like I'm pushing a boulder up a hill and some days that boulder feels smaller and some days that boulder feels bigger. But looking back to like working with 40 artists, now we're working with over 400. So it's really cool now to see how far we've come. Yeah, that's incredible. And so when you were in college and you were first coming to Kenya, what were your intentions at that point? I guess I'm trying to get at like, most people that are listening to the podcast probably aren't going to go head over to Kenya and start like an international shoe business that's like from a local 
cooperative of artisans. But people maybe have these ideas that sound very grand or out of the box and maybe are very purposeful to them. But it's hard to like know that you should dig so heavily in and take the action. So what is it that showed you that you were ready to do something like this? Like what was your original intention and how did it start to change? Like what's that evolution in the beginning look like? So for me, you know, as I mentioned before, I had always wanted to be involved in poverty alleviation. And so I thought for me, that meant working for a nonprofit abroad. And so, you know, I was working and doing research in East Africa. And then once I graduated from college, I, I was living in Tanzania and Kenya, working on child labor and refugee programming. And I found that work meaningful. But at the same time, like in the back of my mind, I still had these connections with Lydia. And I saw that sometimes being in business, it can be more impactful than my time working these charities. And so for me, it was just about having those relationships with those artisans and with Lydia to start that just really made me realize that this was the direction forward. It was ultimately, I'd say, my relationships with Lydia and these artisans. I just felt such a strong connection to them and like a slight disillusionment, to be honest, with the nonprofit world. And I just said, okay, well, you know, this is my next move. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. But I know that we're all here and we all have privilege in, or at least me, I was born to such privilege compared to a number of our artisans. And it would just be such a shame if I didn't do something meaningful with that. Yeah. So you felt a responsibility to use your gifts and talents and kind of direction you're in. And you found your avenue to do it through, which was this kind of a business versus the nonprofit world in general, sounds like. And shoes are just pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I bet your closet has so many colorful shoes at the moment. (laughs) It's like a little embarrassing some days, but it's like, I just call it quality control, you know? Quality control. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So you had, uh, I guess the next section I want to like, I just want to learn from you. I want you to teach me on uh, through these like little parables of stories you mentioned. You talk about the well story, the boot theory, the story of Evad. So this seems related to um, your disillusionment with the nonprofit world. What is it that made you start to look at business as a new way of becoming impactful versus the traditional nonprofit route? Well, I'll say this, and this is probably when I was living in rural Tanzania, I was working for a large international nonprofit. And this nonprofit does great work. And I fully understand the need for this organization to be here. But The project I was working on was one where we were working to reduce the prevalence of child labor in rural Tanzania, in these really, really poor areas, which it's a very lofty goal and it's kind of a pipe dream. But I just remember, so part of my job when I was there was to report on like the successes of this nonprofit. And so I was scheduled to do an interview with this young boy named Evod. And Evod had him he had been involved in child labor in some capacity or was very at risk of being involved in child labor. And now he was attending school and was at the top of his class. So it was my job to kind of, you know, talk about why he was so successful. And so when I went and met with this young boy, he, I mean, first of all, he was fantastic to talk to, but then I remember looking at him and his eyes would like involuntarily shake in a way that kind of, worried me. And I know it wasn't, 
you know, I'm no doctor by any stretch of the imagination. Blood makes me queasy. But it was one of those things where I was like, huh, this seems like something that's a little off. And so I asked the teacher and I was talking to him about, hey, what's going on with your eyes? Is everything okay? Do you need medical attention? And he said his eyes had always done the shaking thing, but him and his teacher disclosed to me that he had to sit super close to the board because he couldn't see as well as you know many of his peers. And so I went back to my organization and said, look, I know that this child, he's so promising and like, yes, he's no longer involved in child labor, but it seems like this, his eye issue is something that could detrimental to his success. So is there something that we as an organization can do to help this child? Because it seems like, yes, yes, he's out of child labor, but what's to say that his eye issues don't lead to him dropping out of school later because it's too difficult for him to study. He was saying that he was studying, you know, three to four hours outside of school every day because, you know, he had to sit so close to his papers and it took him so much longer to do work that the average student would. So long story short, this organization that I was working for, and I don't blame them for this because I understand the need, but they said, look, his eye issue doesn't put him at risk of being involved in child labor. And so like with our funding, there's nothing really that we can do about his eye issue. So long story short, I found an eye doctor in the area and consulted several in the US. And so we were able to get him some medical attention, but that was something that like I myself had to do and rent a car and go with him to a doctor and I paid for the doctor visit. And how do I say this? I'm not trying to pat myself on the back for this or anything, but it was just that experience really highlighted for me the fact that, look, these nonprofits are doing awesome things, but at the same time, there are a lot of gaps that exist. And sometimes if you're in business and have some sort of ethical or social business or business with a social cause, you can be a lot more adaptable to the needs of the people you're working to help because you're not reporting to any donors and you don't have a specific goal that can't change in the way that when I was working for this nonprofit, we were very limited with what we do. Yeah. So you wanted more adaptability and flexibility in how to solve a problem versus this rigid guidelines you had to follow. And if it doesn't meet, then you can't help. Exactly. So yes, I mean, child labor is very much an issue in rural Tanzania, but then we're not addressing the fact that there's just super high unemployment rates in these areas. So families don't have opportunities to earn a fair income for themselves. So they rely on their children as an additional source of income. You're not looking at the fact that yes, infrastructure is a big challenge because it means that it's taking you know, parents an extra hour every day to travel to their jobs and they're losing, you know, they're losing time and money in that travel. And not that a business can necessarily solve huge infrastructural issues, but it's just that I found through Roho, we've had more opportunities to discuss with our artisans what their needs are and how we can address those better together. And so I found that has been really, really fascinating with my business. But part of what makes Roho so special, I mean, I'm a little biased, but is that, you know, we really are committed to the needs of our artisans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess on the opposite end of that, how do you make something profitable as a business opportunity when the people that are supplying and consuming don't have the capital or the infrastructure to make it a like, scalable business per se. It seems like you have to involve like a whole new market like the US, right? Absolutely. Well, that's 
kind of the route that I've gone. At Rojo, really what I'm doing is creating a line of products that are marketable for consumers in the U.S. A lot of these artisans are producing these beautiful products, but they not all the time will translate well to like a Western market where people have the ability to pay more money for these products. So that's really been my job is translating this beautiful, handmade, artisanal, incredible craft and sharing that with people here in the U.S. Right, right. What do you say about like arguments? I know when I was like in college, we had discussions about these kind of social businesses. And one of the more negative impacts is cultural appropriation starts to take place. What do you say about that? So this is a conversation I have pretty frequently with my artisans as well, is how do we, I think part of it, it starts with intention. And for me, I am so committed to honoring an age-old craft. And that's what we're doing really with our artisans. And then we're taking not necessarily like designs that are traditionally African. We're kind of taking more Western designs, but honoring an age-old craft in Kenya and sharing that with consumers. So in some ways, our products aren't uniquely Kenyan you're more likely to find a very Kenyan design of sandals because people are selling sandals across Kenya. And that's fantastic. But I think what we're doing is really providing consumers with products that are made to last and can be worn in a variety of ways and sharing that. And in doing so, I think there's less of an appropriation aspect just because there's not those traditional designs and things being used. I will say though, with our Maasai jewelry line that we have right now. So we're working in addition to our sandal artisans, we have a cowhide collection and we also have a jewelry collection. And in this jewelry collection, we're working with 280 women, Maasai women in the South of Kenya. It's a fair trade women's cooperative that we've partnered with. And with them, those pieces are like traditionally Maasai. And I haven't changed any part of that. And so it's selling products that they themselves would use. Sometimes we adjust colors slightly, but most of the time it's just kind of encouraging our artisans to be creative and create designs and share what they do. Right. Well, yeah, that's cool. So when you're thinking about how you can make some sort of sandal design slightly different to fit more of the U.S. market, like what are some of those considerations? What are you finding that the U.S. people want in sandals and how are you finding that out also? Well, I've definitely looked at a lot more women's feet and I know so much more about women's feet than I ever <laughs> wanted to or thought I would. Yeah. So it's been a lot of word of mouth. I mean, you know, this is something, social businesses are difficult in the sense that like you have a triple bottom line. You have like your initial bottom line and then you also have the people who are making your products as well as our consumers. I feel like I owe them a great amount and then, you know, the planet as well. So these are things where always keeping in mind that make it that has made this process very organic and I'd say slow at times, at least at the beginning. But at the same time, that's also I think what's been amazing is I've been able to share Roho's story so much more one-on-one with people. That's what's been really cool about this process. And so when I speak one-on-one with a number of our consumers, that's when we kind of get, oh well, this would be really cool if we were to simplify it or we would do this in more less bright colors. We would go more to neutrals and things like that. I've kind of found that our 
consumers really like a cleaner aesthetic than I initially started with. And so that's been a learning experience on my part. I'm by no way a designer. I didn't go to school for business. Like this whole thing has like been learning on the go. So one day I'm like doing product design and the next day I'm building a, I don't know, a pop-up event space. And then the next day I'm creating email marketing. So it's like, I don't know, I'm wearing many hats and learning a lot as I go. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's awesome. So what are you finding is like as a CEO mindset, what are you finding are like the best practices for organizing a business and organizing a community and getting people to be collaborative and understand consumers understand what the producers are making and how it's being made, the spirit it's being made in? Because it sounds like that spirit is such so core to the essence of your business. Like you named it after that, Rojo. I would say, well, I'm a compulsive list maker. We'll start there. And it feels like there are so many plates up in the air at all time that have to be kept spinning. And so, you know, some days I'm, you know, on the phone with Kenya and making sure everything is working there. And in terms of my relationships with my artisans and what has really helped that aspect of the business on the supply side, I have hired a quality control manager who's based in Nairobi. Kenya's capital and she's instrumental. Her name is Beth and she is brilliant. She's this Kenyan woman who just is starting to really be as strict about quality of sandals and jewelry as I myself am. And so that has made that process a lot easier is kind of finding my one person on the ground who I really trust to ensure that those plates kind of stay up and spinning. And then here in the States, I've had to remind myself and what's really central to everything we do at Rojo is storytelling. You know, it's telling the stories of how this business was started. It's telling stories about what has influenced us. It's sharing the stories of our artisans. I've just found that that is what's come to be expected by our consumers. Um, and I just enjoy doing it. I mean, I want to, I want a person who buys our bag or jewelry or a pair of sandals to really know the faces behind the products. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So like, what is an example of a story? Is it more of the general story or do you share like really specific details that are really beautiful? Like what is something that's beautiful that's going on? Absolutely. Well, we do both. And I realized I haven't really said this yet, like what our actual impact is for Rojo, but so I'll start there and then kind of go more specific if, if that's fine. <laughs> so first of all, at Rojo, we say we're committed to three things. So that's our beautiful products, our ethical work, and our economic empowerment. So first, beautiful products. Each product that we make is handcrafted and hand-tooled using you know, the finest materials that we can source in Kenya. So we have these beaded leather sandals, our fair trade jewelry, and then a collection of cowhide bags and other accessories. So, you know, we have these what we started with 42 incredible artisans. We're now working with over 400 and over 95% of which are women, which is hugely important to me personally. Second, in terms of ethical work, so we're committed to our artisans and their well-being. So we pay wages far higher than the industry standard. So up to 50% higher than the industry standard. And then we're working to ensure that our artisans are working in a safe environment. We ensure that all of our artisans are over the age of 18, which might sound like a bit of a given here, but it's not necessarily that common in Kenya. And we provide education grants to help send our artisans' children to quality local schools. So in terms of this last like, economic empowerment piece, 
we're really working to break the cycle of poverty in the short and long term by helping people help themselves. So in the short term, through fair paying wages, we're ensuring that our artisans have the opportunity to be able to decide what they and their family need. And then in the long term, it's about creating educational opportunities, ensuring that our artisans' children have more opportunities than our artisans do. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from living at your purpose? I know a bad accident, breakups, and head injuries have plagued my path of purpose. The good news is that People of Purpose has now partnered with BetterHelp, an online counseling platform that will assess your needs from exactly where you are and match you with your very own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. I know that when we are purposefully and passionately pursuing our visions, it can be so hard to take the big action you need for yourself. That's why I love BetterHelp. BetterHelp is available worldwide from the comfort and ease of your smartphone. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, call or video chat as often as you need. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses without needing to be in one single city or drive and sit in an uncomfortable waiting room just to have a 30-minute conversation. These conversations have the power to literally change your life. We need to make sure we're having them. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. For me, the sign-up process was so thorough and personalized to exactly what I needed. Within 15 minutes, I was done, and the very next day, I was paired with a counselor with the pedigree to help me think through exactly the questions I have at this stage in my life. Since I've met my premarital Christian counselor, Colleen, I've had enormous insights on where and how to create better boundaries, and even had a session with my fiance while she's in Thailand and I'm in California. It's amazing how powerful and accessible counseling is today with the power of the internet. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Whether you need professional coaching for your business, help overcoming a trauma, or just need a thought partner who would walk through a rocky part of a road with you, BetterHelp wants to help you start living a happier life today. People of Purpose listeners get 10% off your first month. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash people of purpose. That's betterhelp.com forward slash people of purpose and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Our artisans, the ones we're working with now, I would say on average, especially the Maasai women we're working with, most of them have not gone to like the equivalent of high school. So we're working with a community that has not had any educational opportunities. A number of women we're working with are not literate. That just was never an opportunity they had growing up. So I just want to make sure that, you know, even if their child wants to become a sandal beater, that's awesome. But if they want to become a nurse or a teacher, that there's also the opportunity for them to do that. So that's why who we are and kind of what we do on a larger scale. So just to kind of bring this more personally into like a specific artisan, I think the one who embodies what we're trying to do the most is this woman named Maimuna. And Maimuna, she is a sandal beater and she's amazing. So she is a single mother of three children, two boys and a girl. And 
her husband left her and her family. So of all of our sandal artists on the coast of Kenya, she far has the smallest home and has the smallest income. But her two eldest children are twins and they're currently in secondary school right now, which Maimuna is particularly proud of because no one in her family has reached that far in a love education. And, you know, when we talk to her about what she wants her children to grow up to do, she says nurses or teachers. She doesn't really care. But I just think that's cool that she has these ambitions for her family. And, you know, she's known in our workshop as Mama Workshop because she has such a commitment to our beating. And she's very strict about like what is quality and what's not. And look, I don't want to overstate the impact that we have had yet because we're still very new. But at the same time, like Maimuna has more opportunities than she has had before Rojo. And before she had to make decisions like, do I put quality food on the table or do I pay for school fees? And now that's less of a burden, you know, and, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. And, and so that's one story we have of 400. And that's amazing about what we do. That's awesome. What is it about Maimuna's story that captures so much of your purpose? I see how lit up you are when you tell this story. What is it about her story you think that really lightens something inside you so much? I would say Maimuna, first of all, she's just this single badass mother who is just like trying to do right by her children. And she's doing everything in her power. And it's just that, you know, I have seen from my time abroad in in East Africa, and, and maybe you've seen this in your travels as well, Tanner, like that poverty is as much a lack of opportunity as it is a lack of material possession. So it's like Maimuna was stuck in her relative position because she just didn't have the opportunities to get out of that situation, no matter how hard she tried and how many hours she put in. And so I just see Rojo being a source of opportunity for her in such a cool way. It's an opportunity for her to help herself get out of an impoverished situation. Yeah. What's your relationship with poverty that made you dig so much into this being, you know, the reason you first went over there and now, you know, so much of what you're doing is about alleviating poverty and breaking the cycle. What is it about poverty that attracts your spirit to that so much? Well, I'd say on a personal level, so I was born into a position of like privilege for sure. And then in the 2008 recession, my family lost everything. So I went from being just like not realizing that I was privileged to being in a position where we were growing up in relative poverty in the US. And so I think for me, I just kind of realized, oh my God, I had no idea, you know, four years ago or when, you know, when it happened, that like I had no idea that this could be so impactful in my life. And I just felt like, you know, my mom was a single mom and it was one of those things where I was like, she was stuck. It just felt like we could never get ahead. And I was like, this is what it's like in the US. What is this like in a place where there are fewer social services and where there's less of a safety net? And like, thank goodness we had a very strong support system of like friends and family who were just very supportive as we were making our way through that process. But like, what does that look like for someone who doesn't have that? And so then I think from that point on, I just was like, wow, well, it takes such a resilience to go through something like that and I'm fortunate enough to have access to like education and information and and a lot of people just don't have that. You know, I remember when I was living in Uganda, people 
didn't know how to access information that would normally be free. Well, relatively free if you had access to internet or a smartphone or something. And so this was like, there's so much that people didn't know that they didn't know that could potentially benefit them. So they were stuck in their relative situations. And, and, and so I just said, okay, well, I think it's my job and I know how painful it can be to be in a situation like that. So maybe this is my calling. This is what I can help people help themselves. Yeah. So what is your biggest takeaway that you could share with us around like what's one piece of action that we can take to contribute our small little bit to helping to break the cycle of poverty? I would say, well, there's a number of things, but part of it is it's hard. I mean, I would say finding organizations that you really support that do work like this. I would say that also finding companies that are working to create opportunities for people is another really cool opportunity to support people in a way that's not always just giving to charity. You know, it's about supporting artists who are, you know, creating beautiful products, or it could be supporting small business, you know, like that in and of itself, it's not necessarily poverty alleviation per se, but when you're supporting a small business owner, that means that you're supporting a child going to soccer practice and you're supporting dance lessons and you're supporting like a family being able to get by in a way that sometimes when you go to larger big box retail stores, you're not getting that. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great. So yeah, you're one of these small business owners that you know is looking for support, I imagine. And it sounds like you've gotten some, at least I want to learn more about that. Like what support have you found do you have any donors? Do you have any people that have partnered with you to, I mean, you have education grants. You obviously make a living off of this yourself. How have you received enough support? Have you received support from others to be able to keep this going? Totally. And, you know, I would say in a lot of ways, having a social business is like, it can be more challenging than having a regular business where you just have a single bottom line, like I mentioned before, because you know, for me, it's like at the end of the day, I need to support these artisans and I need to provide these education grants. And so it's taken longer, I would say, in some ways to kind of grow this business because we've had so many commitments and like upfront costs that I would say we don't, a normal business maybe wouldn't have. So for us, we've been really lucky in that initially I secured funding, like a small startup fund from the resolution project and they work with, this is when I was in college and they work with students who have startup ideas and things that are working to not necessarily exclusively alleviate poverty, but do some sort of global good. And so I've worked with them and gained continued mentorship for which I am incredibly grateful. I've also received a grant from Northwestern University, their Institute of Sustainability and Energy. And there we received a Resnick grant where it was almost like a, a grant where we could really start to grow the business in a way that I could have not have done without this money. And so, you know, I will say I'm incredibly scrappy and just have been able to find resource after resource to be able to like support us through this. Cause don't get me wrong. There have been very tight times and times where I'm like, Oh my God, I feel like the expenses are way more than what we're bringing in. But, but we've just made it work because I think the story really resonates with people including people giving out grant money. So we haven't gotten to a point where we have reached out for funding, but it is something we are very much looking at doing in the future is reaching out to a few angel investors and things like that as we grow. So we're um, keeping all options open and continuing to be scrappy in how we do this. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So how do you think of yourself in all of this? Like, what are your unique talents and gifts that you bring to this? Like when people are investing in your business, they're also investing in you as Kaylee. Like, what is it that, uh, that you think are your gifts and talents that you are, that people can believe in? Well, the scrappiness is a very, very useful tool that has just served me and my artisans very well. But I would just say, in addition to just being incredibly resourceful, I am so open to learning and growing because I know I don't know everything. And there's so much, especially when I started this business, there's so much I acknowledged that I didn't know. Like I knew that I didn't know so much. And so for me, I've just really thoroughly enjoyed this process of growing as a person and as a business. And, you know, I have the passion and the commitment to do right by these artisans and that's never, that's never going to change. And I just know that no one else is going to put in the hours or the time that I have put into this at this point. So I'm just grateful to be part of it. You know, if honestly, if there weren't these 400 artisans and our quality control manager, like I don't think I would put as much heart or soul into anything else. This is why I get up in the morning, you know? Yeah. Other people have bought into your dream and now they're holding others responsible for continuing to execute on it. And now you've grown it. You've expanded over 400 artisans. You've gotten attention from pretty major publications like Forbes magazine, United Nations. We're in corporate as well. They're a, they're a blog, which is cool. <laughs> ah, cool. What have you done to get attention from these people? You know, I think I'm a story that resonates with people. So that in part is amazing. I think as well, it helps that I'm young. So I'm 26 and doing this and I'm a woman owned business, which is really, it feels very salient nowadays. And just like, to be honest, in the wake of all of this, like kind of nasty news about what's going on with like me too, and kind of looking at how larger companies have kind of exploited, especially women, this just feels like a very big breath of fresh air. Like we are a small scrappy startup that's really working to make waves and make an impact in the fashion industry, which in and of itself can be incredibly wasteful. And we're really working to kind of decrease that waste in the sense that we're creating products that last so you don't have to replace them as often. And just like helping women and create jobs and supporting families. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So as you've expanded this and you've gotten like a grander understanding of how things are going and where things can go. What are some of your 5, 10, 15, 20 year visions looking like? Like what are those big, grand, lofty ideas you have? So uh, for Rojo, I want us to turn into a hub of ethical fashion. It would be amazing if we could expand from working with exclusively just Kenyan artisans and we could start to expand to work with artisans all over the world part of what is slightly what would be a challenge with that right now is you know the reason we are able to produce such quality beautiful products is that i have such great relationships with our artisans so we would start to reach out to partners who have equally strong relationships with artisans across the world and i just really want this to be a source you know like like essentially the Amazon of ethical fashion. So you go here and you say, oh, I'm looking for a really beautiful, interesting gift idea, but I want to make sure that they're doing something meaningful. I want to make sure that like this isn't supporting child labor. I don't want these beautiful t-shirt that I just bought to have been made in a sweatshop in Bangladesh. I want there to be some meaning behind what I'm doing. 
So for the business, that's what I really want. And for me personally, I mean, I want to be involved with growth every step of the way, but I also want to be a change maker personally in this ethical fashion space. I want to be able to start to demand more and be a voice that demands more from larger companies and, you know, up and coming companies and just say, look, like you have to do more than just have a bottom line. What are you doing for the planet? What are you doing for the people making your products? And what is your global good? Yeah, that's cool. If, if we can even get the attention from those people to host those dialogues, it's going to become really clear who is standing on the side of good here. Yeah, that's great. So what do you think is necessary to transition consumers mindset in the US, these big box retail places, what do you think is going to be a catalyst for ethical fashion, like having that triple bottom line versus a single bottom line, essentially, using your words? I think it's shifting a mindset of consumers. Well, just let's start on the consumer side. It's, It's about shifting a mindset, one where you treat clothes as disposable to one where you treat clothes as investments and things that are meant to last. You know, rather than focusing on quantity, the number of purses, the number of shoes, the number of bags, the number of, you know, whatever you have to, I would rather invest in a, like a smaller number of staple pairs of these items that will last me 10 times as long. It means that in the long term, there's less waste in terms of like textile waste and plastic waste and things like that. And it really kind of simplifies what we need. I think what what I've learned from my time in East Africa is like back home, I have so much stuff that I don't need. That I mean, so many of us have so many things that we don't actually need. So if we can shift our mindset, and that doesn't mean that you can't have fun, fabulous clothes. You can, but it's just it's just acknowledging that if clothes are ethically made, they're going to be more expensive, but they're also going to last you longer. So it's about acknowledging that yes, upfront you might have to pay slightly more. But in the long term, you're going to save money because you're not going to need as many pairs of sandals or boots or whatever. So that's what I would say in terms of a mindset shift for consumers. And then from businesses, it's also going to take a concerted effort to do some sort of social good. And I don't know necessarily, maybe this is a little bit jaded. I hope that businesses will start to do this without us. I would wish that businesses would do this without us just straight up demanding, but I think it is going to take some lobbying on our part, on the consumer's part to say, hey, what are you actually doing? Because we don't want there to be such a negative environmental cost to a business doing financially well. It seems like these things can can kind of work together rather than kind of be opposing, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. So I wanted to ask you some more general purpose questions as someone that I uh, is wise in certain respects around purpose and I try but I don't know how wise (laughs) (laughs) I mean certainly you're young but you've also been able to like really dig in and like go for something full-on and glean so much wisdom and understanding from that and even people that are you know twice your age would not be able to do something so cross-cultural and like intersectional and international across markets like you're really managing a lot of adaptive forces that are very hard to like meld together. And I want to just kind of understand someone like you has like a very interesting, and I think Forbes wrote about it too. You have an interesting like story because you kind of model what this new brand of success should look like as someone that is a woman starting their own business, doing something that's social 
business, social enterprise that has an ethical good, that has that triple bottom line. Like you're modeling so much of these newer versions of success versus like, is your company a billion dollar company or whatever? Like maybe, you know, JC Penney and Macy's and all those people have, have had as their model of success. So I just want to ask you like simply like how is success defined for you with your purpose in mind? Success for me all kind of comes down to impact. So for me, it's about how many people's lives have I been able to positively impact. That's how I find satisfaction because, you know, there are days when I feel like there are so many, you know, plates spinning. I feel like there are fires put out and I, it feels a little overwhelming and like, oh my God, I'm underqualified and not equipped to handle any of what's going on. But, but, but that's also kind of part of it. Like, it's just knowing that this is all going to work out because what we're doing with Rojo, there's like such a passion and a heart behind it. And just if we continue to move in that direction, like not forgetting why we're doing what we're doing, we can't go wrong, you know? Yeah. And then as you're pursuing that impact, what is it that we can do to infuse more meaning into the work we do? Feel more engaged with the work we're doing? I think it ultimately comes down to looking at the big picture of what you're doing. For example, with you, Tanner, I mean, if you look at like, it's a podcast, that's one thing, but you're so much more than just a podcast and not that there's anything wrong with having a podcast. It's awesome. But I just mean like your bigger term mission is really to share purpose with people and to really share stories and to give people motivation to keep going and to live a better life. And so I think every day reflecting upon that bigger goal, that is what makes it all possible. I mean, if you are selling, I don't know, pepperoni or something, and you obviously like that maybe in and of itself wouldn't feel impactful. But if you're like, hey, I have two children and like by doing this, I am helping these children to live a fulfilled, happy, healthy life. That is where you find purpose. And it's just acknowledging what your real goals are and just knowing that that's what you're working towards and reflecting on that frequently. Yeah. Do you think that that's true across cultures? Are you finding that the reasons people work or the meaning that they infuse in their work come from a similar source, like something beyond themselves in Kenya and in Uganda and in Tanzania and in the U.S.? Or how, how are there subtle differences there? Well, I would say to start, like it kind of comes down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So it's like you need to be able to have stability and to be able to make ends meet before you can find passion in your life. Hey guys, this is your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Would you find value in receiving a very short email every other weekend that helps you grow on your path to purpose? The People of Purpose newsletter, or POP for short, is an email where I share with you the most interesting things I recently discovered, have been thinking about, or implementing into my life help you more purposefully pursue your purpose. It will include a short story, some words of wisdom to help you be more purposeful during your day, and an update on how the last guest has inspired me and how they can inspire you too. So take a small step of action right now by sending a quick email to peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com, letting us know you would like to receive the POP newsletter. Just include People of Purpose newsletter in the subject header and you'll receive the very next one. Here's to becoming People of Purpose.
you know, what I have seen with our artisans is like when we started, it seemed like, okay, a number of people are kind of just doing this to get by. And I've kind of seen that with a number of jobs. It's like, okay, we're just doing this to get by. And that is what it is because there aren't many other educational or job opportunities. And so this is just as good as it's going to get. But, you know, spending more time with our artisans and then sharing, especially like our consumers reviews of products and saying, oh my gosh, like this bag you made went here and this is what it's doing. I found that like our artisans find such joy and get such joy out of that as well. So over time, I would say like as we have grown as well, and I can come back and kind of share stories of where our products have gone, our artisans do find that meaningful. And I'd say too, like across cultures. So in the US, we have such an individualistic culture where it's like focusing on me, myself and, and how I'm going to get by and, and kind of looking at it sometimes in direct competition to another person. And in East Africa, it's a much more collectivist culture where it's less about me and it's more about us as a community and how we're going to get by. And so I think it's much easier to find meaning, to be honest, in a culture like that, because it's about supporting one another. And I've seen with our artisans, even ones who, or even actually not even with our artisans, so just thinking about like when I was working in East Africa for nonprofits, like looking at some of the beneficiaries of the work we were doing and how, regardless of the fact that they were scraping to get by, they'd end up really working to support someone who was in more dire need than they were. You know, it was like they had three days worth of food to get them by and who knows how they were going to find, get food on this fourth day, but they were totally willing to give a day's worth of food to someone who was in dire need of that food right then. So I think that's how a lot of the people I've seen in East Africa, how they find meaning too. It's about being much more of a community. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that as well in your travels. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that that's something that I want to, you said people of purpose is more than just a podcast and I want it to become community. I want physical gatherings of people towards a purpose of each of us, like being uplifted into our purpose and being, you know, able to execute on that and create transformational experiences and environments and and walk away with plans and mentors and accountability and structure to be able to go and then have that ripple effect in the world. I think community is incredibly important. Exactly. And I think it's so funny that it seems like, you know, us like Westerners with these very individualistic ideas, like they come back community over and over and over again to find purpose, you know? And it's like, well, like half the world is already doing that. Maybe we could just listen a little more. (laughs) Yeah. And you even said that's what actually like allowed you to commit so much was that it was the relationships you had with Lydia and those other women. Like that's community essentially that convinced you that this was worth it. Like if you happen to do this by yourself for some just idea that was out there, it might be more difficult. Totally. Like full disclosure, like running a startup is hard. Like every day it's hard and it goes back to that boulder analogy. I mentioned at the beginning, like some days that boulder is very big that I'm pushing up a hill and I'm just like, I, you know, it would be a lot easier to just, I don't, I don't know, do almost anything else it feels like some days, but, but that's not the point. I mean, the point is that I am here and I'm working for these artisans and I like can sleep happy every night knowing that's the case, you know, not every night. Some nights I worry about sandal shipments and whatever, but you know, generally speaking. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's awesome. I also wanted to know like what you think is required for collective positive change to come to this world. I'm asking like from the standpoint of someone that understands through deep immersion and engagement with different cultures that, and, you know, had completely different lineages of, you know, thousands of years of developing on their own in separate ways. What do you think is something more universal that would create more collective positive change in this world? I mean, without sounding totally cliched, I mean, I think it's like a common thread. It's like finding something that people share together that's going to really bring about change. It's about, you know, being inspired or having a belief in some shared goal that really brings people together that, you know, wouldn't normally find themselves like agreeing on something. And so for me, that's like, moving towards this idea that, you know, we can do better in this world and we can support people who have had fewer opportunities than we've had. And so like for me, that's really what I love sharing with our customers or even people who aren't our customers who just, you know, I talk to about Roho, I share this. It's it's about, hey, we can do something impactful together and we can really work together to support people who are doing amazing things. No, that's great. And I love, yeah, I think some of what you're saying is essentially like, let's be hopeful. Let's be optimistic. Let's believe in something that's bigger than exists now. And when we can do that together and share our same desire to meet that, yeah, we can do powerful things. You just said it so much better than I did. Yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm lucky enough to get to interview a lot of people from different areas of purpose. And so I get to create these like little intersections in my mind and somehow maybe an hour into a really good conversation like right now, I'm able to, uh, you know, have a burst of insight maybe. I also wanted to know, I find that from talking to like my friends and seeing how my family has done things and then also seeing how you've done things, I've seen that when you're able to like say no to things and give up things to dive fully into a yes, that can lead to such a purposeful engagement, such a more committed, holistic engagement. What's something that you've had to give up that was maybe difficult to give up to come more into your purpose? I've had to give up stability in the sense that, you know, having a startup, I am not making much money, which is fine. But like, you know, for me, I think especially with my background of like not having a lot in kind of some of my formative years, like not having much financially, I think I didn't realize until I really jumped into this how stressful for me financial instability is. And And I've just kind of had to give up this clear idea of how my life is going to look in the next few years. And so in a lot of ways, it's just been about letting go and just giving up this idea that like I control everything. I would definitely self-identify as a type A person, which serves me well in the business, but also makes it kind of anxiety inducing when I'm like, okay, I'm 20 something, don't know anything about business and I'm going to start a business. So there's a lot of sacrifice in the sense of like, I see peers going off and, you know, buying houses and doing all of these things. And that's not where I am, which is totally fine. Like Rojo is my house, but Mm -hmm. it's something I think about sometimes. What advice do you have for people to resolve that need? Like, it seems like the standard of what's instability and what stability is so high in the U.S., like 
people don't feel they're stable until they have a million dollar retirement or something like this, you know? <laughs> totally. Well, I am very far from a million dollar retirement, but you know, I would say that I've had to become so much more okay with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a really good thing is to be okay being in a position where you're uncomfortable if it means like you're growing as a person and you're doing something meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's getting comfortable with discomfort. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. And it also seems like getting clear on your values, like your values are personal growth more so than like bank account growth, for example. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And I just think it makes me a happier, better person and a better global citizen. And I'm able to do more with that. So you're so right, but those are 100% my values. And there's no, there's no judgment if your values are very different than that. Um, but I would still say, regardless of what your values are, there's still something you're going to be sacrificing in doing that. And it's just, you know, when you start to kind of become maybe a little uncomfortable or anxious about the fact that, you know, you're giving these things up, it's just kind of coming back to your values every time and just acknowledging that you're doing right because these are ultimately your goals. You know? Right. Yeah. I want to echo that. Like if people are listening and they're maybe 17 years old and they're interested in doing a social business, like, starting at those basics of assessing what your value system is and what that hierarchy of needs is for you and what your priorities are in your life, like getting clear on those and then making decisions with that framework, it becomes so much easier. You're able to think as an independent person and not just look at what everyone else around you is deciding. And then I think when you act out of that, like truth inside or that self-honesty, you attract people that are also of that same nature and then you can build like really collective community oriented things. Like I'm sure you're attracting like wonderful people into your life because you're very clear on what your values are and very clear on what your commitments and your goals are. And when you find other people that are committed to the same values and the same goals, and then you start to do things together and you're wealthy in that sense. And honestly, like if you enter that into the universe, like so much of what you're looking for and you do it with such like positive intention, I found that like, people want to help you. You know, I could not have done this without a community behind me that are just saying, oh my gosh, like you don't know that much about Facebook marketing, but let me contact you with my best friend or my college roommate who did that. And it's just because I have been very clear in what I'm trying to do with Rojo. And I'm sure, you know, any listener out there who's really seeking some guidance in some way, I mean, entering it into the universe in whatever way that means to you and just being very clear on that, you are going to see returns on it very quickly. Like everyone wants to help everyone, you know, and it's just about making it obvious what you're really looking for. So it kind of come to you. Yeah. And it's, I think it's also really neat. Like um, this disposition you take is just so cheery and optimistic, even though you're working in poverty and you yourself are living at the lowest stability that you're tolerant of handling. Most people feel like, those are external scenarios that would lead someone into depression or something. But it actually seems like the opposite. Like people that have all of this outward stability and don't have that inward sense of purpose are not finding meaning in their lives. And so I think you've tapped into something, being able to deal with some of these uncomfortable external things, but you're, you're working in them in such a way that you're growing personally and you're growing that culture and that community as well and you're attracting those people in your life and now you have this like everyone wants to help everyone mentality <laughs> and don't get me wrong like i have bad days and like 
I've cried in my car more than once, but I think when it comes down to it, I mean, having a conversation like this, even I found it so fulfilling to just be able to say, yes, there are like-minded people. There are people who get what we're doing. And I feel like maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if I were in your position, I would feel like so fulfilled by interviewing all these people who just are doing work in this space, you know, in one way, shape or form. Yeah. I love it. I encourage everyone to start a podcast on the topic (laughs) that's most important to them. Yeah, it's great. I think that this is the biggest question we can ask ourselves is what's our purpose here on this earth? and What kind of gifts and talents do we have that we need to unlock? Yeah, what can the world look like when we're all living from that state? So I definitely feel like that's a big mission for me to help people to unlock that. And it's through stories and people like you that, uh, that really start to open the situations up. And yeah, so thank you for coming people on. like you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get to talk to like three, four or five people a week, it seems like, that have these uh, you know, small ways in which a podcast guest transformed their lives recently or something I wrote or some like Instagram post we made just really reframed something that they'd been stuck on and they're like super thankful that this exists. It's like, that's enough for me to keep going. I'm sure you feel lots of those type of things too in your business. When people are deeply moved by our products, it's because it's like very much a need that they felt like. It's very obvious, like we buy, 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 and how much we consume the rest. And so it's about, look, I'm a little uncomfortable with how conspicuous this consumption is. And so let me be able to support something that kind of like directly contradicts that, you know, this like wastefulness and these kind of like very short buying horizons and, and this excessive amount of garbage that we place on this planet. So I feel like we have so much in common and yet we're doing totally, completely different things. <laughs> I'm glad that you see that too. Yeah, I see that as well. Like, I think people get really caught up on the medium that they're working in. Like, I associate myself with this type of business or this kind of job or this way I spend my hours each day. But those are like pretty surface level things if you think about it. It's like the ethos behind the work you do, the principles you're living by, the values that you are fulfilling as you're doing that, the impact you're having on the world, the wisdom. We're not the first people to figure these things out about, you know, what it's like to walk your path of purpose. These are thousands of years old wisdom that we're starting to uncover the first little bits of. And I just think it's a beautiful thing to get to experience that and to experience how universal that can be across career paths and entrepreneur versus employers versus nonprofit versus, you know, a person in Kenya versus a wealthy American versus a real estate investor with a inner city school teacher, like we all have this need to have purpose in our life. And when people are tapped into it, you can feel it. It's infectious. It like resonates with people when you just share your story and your face lights up. Yeah, it's really cool. So thank you for sharing all that today. Well, thank you for speaking with me and giving me the space to share my stories. Yeah. So what is it that you want people to be directed to say like, they love who Kaylee is, they love what Rojo is all about. And they want to contribute. What is it that they can do to take that next step of action? Yeah. So first and foremost, if you want to check out any of our products or read more about us on our website, our website is roho, R-O-H-O, goods.com. And then we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We're the same. It's Roho Goods. But beyond that, I would say, and like there's, I mean, I don't want, if you don't need a pair of sandals, I don't want you to buy a pair of sandals. I like, I want, if you're really interested in some of our products, like I want them to be things that you love and cherish and that 
use until they are no longer usable, you know? But I would say, you know, with holidays coming around or birthdays or whatever, if you are looking for a meaningful gift, just put some mind or share what Roho is about and start to think about as you're shopping, who really made the clothes that you're interested in buying and what is the impact of that. So I just hope that this starts to encourage a conversation about what it means to be an ethical consumer and how we can all do our part. It doesn't have to mean every time, but it can mean, you know, 10% of the time. What what happens if we buy local or invest in ethical brands or just start to shift our mindset about the clothes that we wear? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing all that, Kaylee. And I know that uh, you have a bright future ahead of you as you get to follow your path of purpose many, many more years. Being only 26 (laughs) and understanding these things and having this level of impact already is, I'm excited for your future. Thank you so much, Tanner. We all do our part. And this is my part right now. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question? Or is there something we can help you work through to figure out and reach your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Just send us an email or a message on Facebook. If you want continued inspiration, subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our insightful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. And if you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as receive daily inspiration, follow the podcast and journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast or at People of Purpose on Facebook to join our purpose-seeking community. By joining, you will know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose news, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration. I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me to nourish your path to purpose. Lastly, if you like this podcast, please post a review wherever you listen to it. Doing so will not only help us to grow, but will also allow your voice to be heard and who knows who you could inspire. Cheers, and here's to becoming.